Uh, and those desires and those longings are actually only find their fulfillment uh, in God. But our world understands that there's these longings. And so when we, when we watch advertisements like the one we just watched, it actually, many of them actually tap into those things that are inherent in every single one of us. So with this Tide commercial, Tide to Go, I think that's what it's called. That was called Tide to Go. Yeah. Um, who wants to take a guess at maybe what the underlying? I know it's a funny commercial, but what the underlying thing is that it's tapping into? What's that? Unemployment. Unemployment. True. True. That's uh, that's good. Something maybe even deeper. Fear of embarrassment. That's true, but let's go even a step deeper. What, what is, where does the fear of embarrassment come from? Inadequacy, how you look. Why are we concerned about how we look? Why are we concerned about being inadequate? Because we want to be accepted. We, we kind of got there. We want to be accepted. We want to belong. We want to be loved. Um, I think I got another commercial. Let's roll, let's roll the other one as well. Let's see if you can see this theme even in this one. The holidays are here again, so I'm inviting all my friends, the people who are close to me. They're my extended family. You've got my mom, my sis, my brother, my surprisingly cool stepmother, and the two kids that she had before she ever met my dad. Next, you've got my aunts and cousins. They showed up with several dozen friends of theirs. It's fine with me. I've got enough for all. Here in the hall, you've got my office mates, my best friend, and his online date. They've all come here to celebrate. This is my family. My judo coach, my allergist, my MySpace friends and Twitter list, and the first girl that I ever kissed. You're beautiful. I love you. Cause there's one truth I have found, and it's never let me down. When you stock up on joy, there's enough to go round. Sing and joy, enough to go round. So here, another commercial that's tapping into all of the possible relationships that this guy might have. Uh, and the underlying message is, you know, you go to Walmart or have some Coca-Cola, you know, and all of a sudden all these relationships um, are what they were supposed to be, um, except his ex-girlfriend, obviously. But if we go even to the Tide commercial, the idea is that this little stick is going to erase everything that makes you unacceptable so that you can be accepted. Because that's the underlying fear, even when you go for a job interview, right, is that you want to be acceptable. So I'm going to go back a little bit, just recap where we started in week one. And we're going to talk specifically about love and belonging a little bit later uh, this morning. But we started uh, in week one at kickoff by talking about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve believed that God, in some way, had been holding out on them, that they had to go outside of the will of God, outside of the order that God had established to fulfill the longing that was in their heart. And when they uh, ate the fruit that God told them not to eat, God sent them away from the, the garden. Which direction did he send them? East. So they sent them east from the garden. And you'll, you'll see this journey east throughout uh, Genesis, throughout the beginning of your scripture. And Adam, in many ways, represents all of us. 
you know, even the, the name Adam, Adam in Hebrew means humanity or mankind. So not only is it the story of Adam and Eve, but it's also the story of every one of us that we tend to look outside of God's created order to find our longings and our desires satisfied. In fact, if you look at the creation account itself, God creates out of chaos. There's a chaotic world and God brings order out of chaos. God separates land and sea and animals and humans and, and he brings structure to the created order. And so he invites us to live in that structure. He loves us, invites us to live in that order, but we often go outside of his order in order to fulfill the longings and desires in our hearts. So we looked at how this happened in the, the story of Cain and Abel. Cain killed his younger brother, uh, and God, after he was killed, sends him to be a restless wanderer on the earth. That You are going to wander, you're not going to find a home. And it says that Cain went to the land of Nod. And you, all, uh, you know, historians can't actually locate any type of land of Nod. And so even the name Nod itself means what, if you remember? Wander, wandering. This land of wandering. So Cain goes to inhabit a land that's uninhabitable. Cain begins a wandering journey and this land of Nod was east of Eden. He's traveling continually away from Eden, continually away from uh, God's ways, God's order of things, wandering, looking for a home. And in many ways, this, this is the story of the entire human condition. Wandering, looking for a home, maybe feeling like God's holding out on us and looking for answers elsewhere. I want to bring a bit of background before we get into love and belonging. I feel like there's some, uh, just some foundational pieces that I want to kind of go through really quickly um, to give us an understanding, a biblical understanding of human uh, desire. So if you have your uh, Bibles with you, you can turn to Genesis 4, uh, 6 to 7. And if you don't have a Bible, I don't know if the ushers came forward yet, but if they, uh, they will come forward if they haven't already, and just put up your hand if you would like a Bible, and they'd love to give you one. If you don't own one, you can take that, uh, you can take that Bible home. It's our gift to you. So you can turn to Genesis, Genesis 4. And here we're coming uh, to the story of Cain, which we passed over and kick off, but I want to revisit quickly. So Cain kills Abel, and God speaks to Cain and says, Why are you so angry? The Lord asks Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right, but if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. Sin is crouching at the door, waiting to control you. You must subdue it and be its master. You see, anger in and of itself isn't necessarily a bad thing. In fact, throughout Scripture, we see that God becomes angry. A perfect, loving God being angry. It's how you direct that anger, how you um, respond in anger, what you're angry about, uh, that will lead you towards life or lead you towards death. But anger in and of itself is not necessarily a bad or wrong thing. In fact, 
Quick side note, I sat my, one of my sons down a couple weeks ago and read this story to him. I said, why are you so angry? Since sitting at the door, crouching at the door, watch out, it's going to control you. Um, my kids get angry all the time. I, my youngest son um, ripped up his school book two weeks ago, uh, the day of parent-teacher interviews. We went in to meet the teacher, and we're like, so how's Silas doing? Well... Side, do you want to tell them what happened today? And so he took his scribbler and ripped it up in the class. And we're trying to explore the underlying reasons why our son would do such a thing. And, um, and the truth came out. He said, I do not like the letter eight. <laughs> Guess he was learning the letter eight. And some, something about the letter eight in him just didn't, didn't mesh. And so he felt like he had to rip his book apart. And I try to explain it. It's okay to be angry. It's okay. Uh, but maybe ripping your book is not the best way. But this idea that our emotions, our longings, these things aren't necessarily inherently wrong, but how we pursue them, how we handle them, is what leads to life or what leads to death. You know, the longings even that Adam and Eve had weren't inherently wrong. But when they went outside of God's created order, it led them east of Eden. James 1 you can go to James 1, 13 uh, to 14. Uh, and it says a similar thing. It says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. I read this the, out of the New International Version of the Bible because in the NIV, it actually says, um, it uses the word evil desire. You're dragged away by your evil desire. And this is how we have traditionally understood desire in the Western world. But the word evil is not actually in the Greek language which this letter of James was written in. In the Greek, you pronounce it idios, epithumios. Idios means one's own, epithumios means desire. There's no Greek word in there, which would be kakos or something like that, that means evil. There's no one's own evil desire. It's one's own desire. And so the, the idea is that when desire actually controls you, and you're dragged away by it, it leads to sin, which leads to death. But like Cain, we need to be in control of our desire. We need to pursue our desire in God's proper order in order to have it fulfilled and be something that leads us towards life. God is teaching Cain and God is teaching us the basic principle. Allow your desires to grow out of control and you will always live with those desires unfulfilled, trying to make, trying to make them happen on your own rather than relying on God's providence. You will find yourself east of Eden in an unhabitable land where there is no satisfaction, no sense of home. So our desires aren't evil in themselves. C.S. Lewis said, A chainsaw in the hands of an ice sculptor is a beautiful thing, but in the hands of a child is a very dangerous thing. Right? So a chainsaw in and of itself is not a bad thing, but it obviously has its place and its purpose. Um, in addition to this, if you look at First Corinthians, Corinthians 15.50, just as one example, uh, Paul is writing, he says, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. And so we often read 
Paul's letters, and he talks about flesh a lot as this uh, dualism between the material world and the spiritual world. And this is actually more of an idea from Plato than it is an idea from Scripture, that material world is bad, spiritual world is good. If you look at the creation account, God created the world and he said it was good. He said it was very good. The physical world was good. Our bodies are good. Creation is good. Even our desires he put there are good. And so when, when Paul uses the word flesh, again, not to get too, too nerdy here, but in the Greek it's the word sarx. It's not the same word as body. Sarx means the, the things in the material world that are perishing or perishable or are corruptible. There's things in the material world that are dying. There's a way of death. If we align our bodies and our lives in the way of death, we experience death and we experience perishing. It's the word sarks. The word body is soma. Paul never says that the body, the soma, the physical, our physicalness is evil. He's saying that there's, there's a way in our flesh when we pursue that which is perishable, when, with that which is outside of God's design that we experience death. You can think of it this way. A few years ago, if you remember, a couple of men climbed a fence at the zoo, 2.4 meters, at 1 a.m. in the morning. And then they climbed another fence, two fences, to get close to a tiger. Seems like a smart idea. They were attacked by the tiger, um, and the one guy, I think, had his arm quite uh, mangled because of his encounter with the tiger. Now, we could look at this event and we could blame the tiger. That stupid tiger. Doesn't know what it's doing. We could blame the zookeeper. It was the zookeeper's fault. He trained the tiger to bite you. But we know that this isn't true. We know that the tiger is there at the zoo to be enjoyed. You know, in the same way, God is not an angry tyrant, but he's a loving God who's guiding and instructing us in the way that life works. If you go to the tiger exhibit and you jump the cage, you would be foolish. And you'd be especially foolish if you accused the zookeeper for being attacked by the tiger. The zookeeper has two options. He can either close down the zoo and deprive us of the joy of you know, seeing the tiger and the other animals, or he can allow us to come to the zoo but have warnings and fences and a structure on how we can best enjoy the animals. Do you guys see the difference? The tiger isn't bad. The tiger isn't wrong. But the tiger, obviously, is meant to be enjoyed in, in a certain setting. And if we jump the fence, we go outside of that design, you know, the tiger's going to eat your arm. There's a guy in 1943 named Abraham Maslow, and he created something called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. And, and I'm going to throw it on the screen right now because it's, it's a little bit of background on what we're talking about. Uh, and so his basic concept is that there's basic, there's basic needs to every human being. Every human being has a physiological need, food, shelter, clothing. Every human being has a need for safety. But you can't be safe unless that basic human need is met. 
So you meet the basic human need, and then you can be safe. You can't feel love and belonging until you feel safety. You can't develop proper self-esteem and esteem unless you feel love, love and belonging. You can't experience self-actualization or purpose and meaning in your life until you experience that which was below. So this was his basic concept and idea. If you, if you look at last week, right, we talked a little bit about safety and risk. Um, and uh, this week we're moving up and we're talking about love and belonging. And next week we'll talk about the other two above it. But love and belonging has been ad- identified even outside of Scripture, outside of the Christian world, in our world, as something that is inherently uh, a need that is inherent in every single human being. And the scripture would say that's good and that's normal, but when we go outside of God's design to fulfill that need, um, then we get into trouble. So let's go back to Genesis. And I want to kind of illustrate how this theme is woven through a number of stories in Genesis. Um, So just to give a a bit of quick background. Uh, So there was, we had Cain and Abel, and then there was generations after Cain, uh, and then eventually there was a guy named Abraham. God would establish his covenant with Abraham, a covenantal people. And so Abraham uh, had this covenant with God that, that, he, that him and his family would be God's people and they would represent uh, God to the world. They would be a light to the other nations. And every generation would have one child who would be chosen as an heir to continue the covenant that God gave to Abraham. So Abraham fathered Isaac. Years later, Isaac's wife, Rebecca, was pregnant with twins. And there was a prophecy given, you can see this in Genesis 25, and the prophecy was that the younger, or the older, sorry, will serve the younger. So traditionally, the older son would be the heir to the promise, the blessing. But here God says, actually, in this case, the younger one is going to be heir, the older one will serve the younger. And then as you read the story, Isaac, the father, favored Esau, his oldest son. Rebekah, the mother, favored Jacob, his younger son. And the time came for Isaac to receive his blessing, even though that God had established that it was Jacob that was going to receive the blessing. So Isaac tells Esau to... Sorry, Esau was receiving the blessing. Isaac tells Esau to to go prepare to receive the blessing. But Rebekah kind of interrupts and finds Jacob and says that now is the time that you're going to get your father's blessing. And so uh, at Rebekah's kind of push, Jacob goes to put on Esau's clothes and put on goat skin on his neck and on his arms so that he would be hairy like Esau. Esau was a hairy dude. So Jacob goes to his nearly blind father, or his blind father, uh, to receive blessing that was intended for Isaac. And we can read you know, this account in Genesis 27, and it says, Isaac said to Jacob, come closer so I can touch you and make sure that you really are Esau. So Jacob went closer to his father, and Isaac touched him. The voice is Jacob's, but the hands are Esau's, Isaac said. But he did not recognize Jacob because Jacob's hand felt hairy just like Esau, so Isaac prepared to bless Jacob. Jacob had to pretend to be somebody else to get his father's love and blessing. 
when Esau found out that Jacob had deceived his father and gotten Esau's blessing, he became furious and Jacob, in his fear, fled into the wilderness and he went which direction? East. Wandering. He fled to Rebekah's family. He found his uncle Laban and his uncle hired him as a shepherd. So as he's working for his uncle, his uncle Laban asks him, what can I pay you for taking care of my flock? Jacob responds by saying, well, you got a daughter and she's smoking hot. I'd love to marry her. You know, the literal Hebrew does tell us that Rachel was smoking hot. So Laban says, okay, you served me for seven years. And then the text says it seemed like only a few days to Jacob because of his love for her. Jacob was so infatuated with Rachel that seven years seemed like a few days. So finally, seven years was up. And uh, Jacob goes to his father-in-law. And, uh, and he says to his father-in-law, Sorry, seven years, by the way, was three times the price of what a normal uh, person would pay a father for his daughter's hand in marriage. So he's already gone above and beyond. So he goes to the father-in-law, said, my time's up. Um, give me your daughter so that I may sleep with her. Um, if, if there's any men in this room that are looking to talk to a future father-in-law because you want to marry her, I don't, I don't encourage you to use this tactic. Not a good line. Um, not very appropriate then nor now. But that's what he says. He says, give me your daughter. She's smoking hot. She's awesome. I want to sleep with her. And so Laban, you know, they put on this wedding. Uh, and in the dark that night, Jacob receives his bride. She was veiled. And he sleeps with her. And if you know the story, you know that Jacob wakes up in the morning and realizes that his bride is not Rachel, but Leah, Rachel's sister. And Rachel's sister, Leah, uh, it says in the text that uh, she had weak eyes. That doesn't mean that her eyesight was poor. It more so means that she was unsightly. And it contrasts her with the beauty of Rachel. Rachel was this beautiful, smoking hot girl. Leah was unsightly. Leah grew up in the shadow of Rachel. Everybody wanted Rachel. Laban knew this and thought, here's my chance to actually marry off Leah. So Jacob goes and talks to Laban, and Laban says, you have to actually work for me another seven years, and then I will finally give you Rachel's hand in marriage. So 14 years, Jacob worked for Laban to get Rachel's hand in marriage. And so I ask this question, why was Jacob's over, why was his desire so overwhelming? Why, why was he so intent on marrying Rachel? His life was empty. He had to pretend to be someone that he was not in order to get his father's love and blessing and acceptance. That left a hole in him. That left a an unsatisfied 
human desire that we all have to be accepted and loved, and particularly by our own parents. He never had his father's love. The mother whom he did love and whom loved him, he had to leave and separate from her. He definitely didn't have a sense of God's love and care at this point in his life. You know, finally he sees Rachel and he thinks, if I could only have her, if I could be married to her, she would fix everything. She's great, she's hot, if she could be my wife, all this stuff would finally be settled and I'd be satisfied. The longings of his heart were fixed on Rachel. And if you look at the story, when Jacob goes to Laban and he asks for Rachel's hand in marriage, and Laban actually takes advantage of him, Jacob heard what he wanted to hear. Laban never actually said, deal, I'll give you Rachel's hand in marriage. He never said that. The words that he said were, it's better that you would marry Rachel than somebody else. That's all he said. So in the middle of the wedding celebration, Laban brought his wife to him, and when she's unveiled, the morning came, and the text there in Genesis 29, verse 25 says, when Jacob woke up in the morning, it was Leah. What have you done to me? Jacob raged to Laban, I worked seven years for Rachel. Why have you tricked me? And here's the truth. No disrespect to Leah. But when we think that another human being can fix us or deliver on this desire that we all have, you will always wake up in the morning and it'll be Leah. If you think that Rachel is going to change your life and fulfill you, it will always be Leah. You will always be disappointed. You will always be wandering. You will always be moving away from God's plan for you. You'll always be moving east. Jacob is the story that I think we relate to. You know, whether your mother or your father disappointed you and didn't deliver on what you thought they ought to, your siblings, you know, he was living in constant comparison to his brother Esau because his father loved Esau more than him, disappointed in relationships. That this left a vacancy, a hole in Jacob's heart. And those desires that he had were not evil. They were good and they were important and God put them there. But Jacob decided that he thought he could satisfy the desires horizontally and he couldn't. It's only the desire that God put there that we could satisfy vertically. Now what's fascinating in the story is if you turn to Genesis 29, I don't have this on the screen, but um, if you go to Genesis 29, verse 31, in, refl- in response to Leah, this is, uh, this is about Leah here, it says, when the Lord saw that Leah was un- unloved, he enabled her to have children, but Rachel could not conceive. So now here we see Leah living in this life of comparison with her sibling, hoping that, you know, maybe if she had kids that she would become more lovable. So 
Follow this. So Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, The Lord has noticed my misery, and now my husband will love me. She soon became pregnant again and gave birth to another son. She named him Simeon, for she said, The Lord heard that I was unloved and has given me another son. Then she became pregnant a third time and gave birth to another son. She named him Levi, for she said, Surely this time my husband will feel affection for me since I have now given him three sons. Once again, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to another son. She named him Judah, for she said, Now I will praise the Lord, and she stopped having children. It wasn't until her fourth son that she finally gets rid of this idea that her longing is going to be satisfied in Jacob. And she turns towards the Lord. Leah thought that she could gain this longing desire by having kids which would make Jacob love her more. I, don't, I can't think of a better story in Scripture that, desire, that, that kind of paints this picture of this human desire that we all have. And I don't know your story, but my guess is that you relate to some part of this, that whether it was your parents, your friends, your community, your siblings, um, your desire to have kids when you did have kids, if you couldn't have kids, or if you're married or you're not married, we, you know, we, we're searching and grasping for something to fix this longing inside of us. But I can guarantee you, because this is the story of history, it's God's story that he's given to us, that those kids that you want, that marriage that you want, that person that you want, that relationship that you want, that longing that you have will never be fulfilled by any of those horizontal things. In fact, I believe that God's put that desire and that longing in us because we, he intends us to wander and find our way back to him. And so who is it in your life that you're, you've convinced that, you know, if something would just change there in that relationship, that would be different, that, you know, it would, it would fix this feeling I have? There's some of you that are still disappointed by your parents. But we know that every child that eventually grows up at some point and has to come to grips with the reality that their parents are broken people too. My parents are here this morning. I don't think they want to be celebrating this way, but they're not perfect. Uh, they're great parents, but they're not perfect. And neither am I. And at some point, my kids are going to have to come to grips with that too. Your spouse, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your friend, your kids... You know, who is it in your life that you're like, if that relationship would change, then finally this thing that I have broken inside of me would be fulfilled? Because the word of the Lord tells us that it's a lie. That as long as we have our eyes set in that way, we continue to wander. And like Leah, it's only at that point where we realize, I've got to stop looking horizontally and look vertically that I find purpose and meaning, which we're going to unpack a bit next week. As the band comes up, I want to end on a quote from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says this, uh, and even as I'm reading this, I would invite the, even the prayer teams uh, to come forward, if you could do that. C.S. Lewis says, Most people, if they have really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that 
They do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I am speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we have all grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent, and, the chemist and chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. See, C.S. Lewis recognized that we are like Adam, we are like Jacob, we are like Leah. We are traveling east, trying to inhabit a land that's uninhabitable trying to find something horizontally to satisfy us when that's, that longing was only meant to be satisfied vertically. I'm going to invite you to stand. And even as the, as the band closes on this final song, uh, I would invite you again to, to come forward for prayer. Maybe, maybe you've realized this morning that you've been looking for love in all the wrong places. Uh, and not that those relationships are bad. There's nothing bad about those relationships. There's nothing bad about your wife or your kids or your parents or your, you know, maybe there is, but, you know, the, your longing for their love is not bad. But the belief that that love is going to fix what's broken inside of you is the lie. And some of you have been wandering for way too long thinking that this was the thing that was going to satisfy you, and it's not. And it's actually only, like, you know that love multiplies? It's only when we receive the love of the Father who's perfect that we actually can give away love in a more healthier, better way to those that we love around us. There's not a limit on love. In fact, God is love. And so if you want to experience love in your life, you want to give away love in a meaningful way, the only way to really fill up on it and give it away is to come to God himself, the source of love, the source of your longings, the source of your desires, the, the creator that created you. That, so the only place that you can actually find a home is in relationship with him. And if you're anything like me, maybe at some point you, you decide you want to be in a relationship with him, but you've wandered away. We're funny creatures in that way. Even when we know the answer, we still sometimes need to be reminded of the answer because we wander away, we've got to come back. And so if you're in that place this morning, I would just invite you to come forward. We'd love to just pray with you, bless you. You don't, you don't even have to share your soul when you come forward. It's just a chance for us to pray the love of God over you. And maybe it's the first time for you. Maybe it's the 20th time. It doesn't matter. We, we just invite you to come. So God, we just say thank you that you love us. Uh, we thank you that um, because of your son Jesus, when you look at us, you don't, you don't focus on the stain 
that makes us unacceptable. Lord, that you accept us as we are, that you invite us in. Lord, I just sense that there's wandering folks in this room uh, that just need to be reminded where their home is. That you give something that only you can, you've created a desire that in us that only you can satisfy, God. And we just recognize that this morning. And in the spirit of thanksgiving, we just say thank you. Thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your son. Thank you for making a way for us to come home that we don't have to travel east anymore, but we can turn around and come back to you, to your family, to your presence, and that we can live with that sense of home even today in a chaotic world. In Jesus' name, amen. I recognize on a weekend like this, uh, some of these themes might be even more acute as you gather around a Thanksgiving table. Uh, you know, when you're sitting up there on a table with, with folks that have, um, you know, you were looking to for something that they didn't deliver on. And some of you maybe even aren't sitting around a table, which, um, which would create a, a whole another set of emotions and feelings. But it's fascinating that God gives us the image of a table as the primary image of his relationship with us. One of the primary images. He invites us to a table. It's a family dinner. He invites us home. And when we think it's just about, you know, these horizontal relationships we have, we miss out on true home. And so, uh, you know, as you, as God highlights for you these relationships that you're grasping at, that just seem to be evading you, that aren't quite what you hoped and thought they might be, and it's creating this intense longing and desire in your heart, uh, that longing and desire is good. But the question is, can you recognize that the searching is actually just supposed to leave you vertical, lead you to look vertically. Yeah. That that intensity is increased in you because God is that intent on making sure you find home with Him. So, Father, we just can't say thanks. Lord, I know there's uh, people in this room that have not found their home with you. They have not even responded to your invitation to come sit at the table with you. Uh, Lord, they've been hurt, and they've been, and they feel hurt for good reasons. Lord, that there's people in their lives that have disappointed them, friends, sisters, brothers mother, father, children, church community, people in leadership. Lord, they, they've been hurt. Um, 
Lord, I pray right now that you would meet them in that place. Lord, that you would show them that, that you grieve with them for the, that hurt that they felt, but you would also lead them to yourself. That we would realize that true healing and true home does not come from other people, but only from our Creator. God, we're tired of wandering. Would you make a home in us? And maybe you're in that place this morning and you, you've never invited God to make a home in your hearts and I would just invite you to, to pray in your hearts with me that um, a father, I recognize that I've wandered from you. I recognize that I was created to live for you. I'm sorry for wandering. I want to come home. God, we just recognize that you are home. And wherever our life takes us, Lord, we can be at home because as you promise, you go with us, that you are with us, that you are in us. And so we just say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.